Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Maccabees. We'll be in the book of 2 Maccabees today. And uh, as you're turning there, uh, I just want to tell you, like, we have free Bibles to give you today. And so if you need a Bible or you need, a, you know, have one around, floating around, um, we would love to give you one, a new one, and uh, just send you home with a free Bible today. Um, and uh, also, as you're, as you're turning to 2 Maccabees, chapter 10 is where we're going to be. The... Um, the <laughs> you're looking at me i can't keep it's hard to preach like this <laughs> um have you any of you heard of the uh jewish holiday hanukkah anybody hanukkah yeah you've seen hanukkah before so you might be familiar with a dreidel or you might be familiar with um the lighting of the lamps but do you know hanukkah is you know how long it is it's a long celebration you know how long hanukkah is it is eight days long. Eight days long, which is fascinating. And I thought it would be wonderful. Like, do you know why Hanukkah is eight days long? And so uh, in order to find the answer to this question, we have to read from 2 Maccabees chapter 10. And so let me read this for you. It says this. It says, they celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the festival of booze. Remembering how not long before, during the festival of booze, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals. Therefore, carrying ivy wreaths, wands, and beautiful branches, and also fawns of palm, they offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his own holy place. They decreed by public edict and ratified by vote that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. And so there you go. 2 Maccabees chapter 10, verses 6 through 8 tell us exactly why the Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah for eight days every year. Hey, hey what? It's not, it's, it's not in your... It's not in my Bible. It's not, it's not in there? Oh, no. I, I, those of you that looked it up on Bible Gateway, you're like, I'm good. I got it right here. But it's, it's, not, it's not in my Bible? Oh, man, that's embarrassing. Well, <laughs> I, I have to, uh, let's, let's, let's do a different sermon. That one wasn't good anyway. That wasn't good anyway. So, hey, all kidding aside, what books are in our Bible and has the Bible changed over the years is one of the biggest things that you have to understand as a Christian because modern day skeptics, modern day thinkers, they will challenge this all day long because there's no denying how impactful the Bible is. Like billions and billions of people have read this book. And billions and billions of people know that it's true. And so if you want to attack the Bible, attacking how it came to be is a really easy target. And so they would say that, well, the Bible's changed over time. Or they would say that people determined what books ended up in our Bible. And so this particular book of 2 Maccabees is a legitimate ancient, art, uh, ancient document, 
but it's in what's called the Apocrypha. And these books are included, if you read a Catholic Bible, it's, it's there. Like, you can read this in the, the Bible, this, this, um, in the Catholic Bible. Those of you who grew up learning from the King James Version like me, it was interesting to learn and know that this particular book, along with all the other apocryphal books, and there's a handful of them, they were all included in the original publishing of the King James Version in 1611. And not only were they included in the original publishment of the King James Version, they stayed in the Bible for 274 years, up until 1885. So that's 274 years of people on this planet believing that 2 Maccabees was in the Bible. And in addition to these apocryphal books, there are many other books that some people claim to be a part of the Bible. Like they should be a part of the Bible, they might say. And these are just a handful of them. There's even some organized religions, like the Mormons, for example, that will claim that the Bible has changed over the years. And since it has changed over the years, that God's new revelation to a man named Joseph Smith with these golden plates, it's a long story for another day. But that particular revelation is more important than the Bible. They would say that the words that Joseph Smith received supersede that of the Bible because the Bible has changed over the years years. And so my friends, this today, what we're talking about is a big deal, a big, big deal. If you don't get this, you might just question your faith. You might question your ability to trust the Bible as the word of God. And if you do that, you're not going to want to build your life on something that you think is untrustworthy. You might also get distracted and carried away by the feel-good messages of like the Mormon religion or confused by what you see in famous books or movies like the Da Vinci Code. And so, how did books of the Bible make it into the 66 books in our leather-bound Bibles today? How did it happen? The short answer to this question is one word. It's the word canon. <laughs> but not that kind of canon. <laughs> the English word canon comes from a Greek word meaning a measuring rod. It became to define a rule or a standard, a norm, and to make it into the canon, you had, to be, you had to do canonicity. So there were qualifications to measure up to this standard. And so there was a process that people put these ancient documents through to, to match them up to the canon. And here's the process. The process was, number one, the writings were inspired by God. Number two, the writings were recognized as such by men of God. And number three, the writings which were recognized as inspired were collected and preserved by the people of God. And so some of these things, right, you're not going to find this in the Bible. This is in church history that you can read and the things they taught me in seminary, right? But this is the process of how we got our Bible today, that these writings 
were inspired by God. They were God-breathed. And then they were recognized by people as such, and then they were collected together. And so notice, this is so important, that were the books in the Bible, like Isaiah or Genesis or Exodus, you know, whatever, were the books in the Bible, the word of God, inspired word of God, before they were collected into this today that we call the Bible? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Like, people did not determine which books went into the Bible, and so therefore they became the word of God. Like, God's word was breathed, it was written, it was inspired, and they were recognized, and the people that recognized it just collected them together. And so that's really really important, that people didn't determine this. Like, God had sovereignty over this situation, like he does every situation. And like, yes, men and people did make these choices, and they were involved in the process. And whenever human beings are involved in something, there is certain to be errors or, uh, you know, strange things that happen. But God, we believe, was sovereign over this process of how we got to 66 books in our Bible today. And so the process of canonization, it was a little different from the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, those are the two major uh, divisions of the Bible. And so the, the Old Testament, which is like the Hebrew scriptures... Um, they had to run it through something like this. Now, this isn't like the only way, but this is like a similar way. If you were to look it up and study, you know, what this means, you'd find something similar to this, that the people that were making these determinations of collecting these things into the canon of scripture, they were looking to see if it spoke with divine authority or if it was written by a prophet. They wanted to make sure it was in line with previous revelation. And number four, it was generally accepted by the people of God who read it, copied it, and collected it with other scriptures. And so this is what these people were looking for. But it's really fascinating to see when Jesus walked on this earth, Jesus is the word of God. He, he spoke the word of God. He, he knows the scriptures, right? Jesus is Jesus. It's God. And so what does Jesus have to say about the Old Testament scriptures? Because by the time Jesus was walking around on this planet, the Old Testament was canonized. It, it, was, it was basically the same way as we know it today by the time Jesus was walking around. And so Jesus said some interesting things about this Old Testament scriptures. Like, for example, um, in Matthew 23, 35, he said this, As a result, you, the Pharisees, will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time. You're like, Jesus said that? Jesus said that. You're responsible for that. It's like he was talking to the Pharisees, and he was speaking to them very strongly to help them recognize that they weren't as righteous or smart as they thought they were. So he was giving it to them hard. And so he said, you're responsible for all the, godly, the murder of all the godly people of all time from the murder of righteous Abel, who was the first death recorded in the Hebrew Bibles, to the murder of Zechariah, son of Barakai, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. And that's the last death recorded for us in the Hebrew scriptures. And so what Jesus was essentially saying is, like, all of these people that died, all of these people that you killed, you know, the religious people killed, the prophets, 
all these people from the first one to the last one in the Old Testament scriptures that we have today, all of it like, is your responsibility. And he was recognizing all of it, which is a, it's incredible. Also, <clears throat> Jesus referenced another interesting thing about the Old Testament. In Luke 24, 44, he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, number one, and the prophets, number two, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so Jesus looks at the Old Testament and he says, you know how your Old Testament's divided up into three different sections. This is, this is the way that it is today. The first five books is called the Torah. And he's like, that, yeah, that was talking about me. And then like the other books, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, those ones were the prophets. And Jesus said, yeah, those books are talking about me. And then I know you've got a third section of the Old Testament. I know it's called the Psalms and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. He's like, yeah, those ones too are talking about me. And Jesus said, all of the Old Testament is talking about me. All three of those sections. And Jesus doesn't leave a single one of those sections out which is very, very fascinating. And it just confirms, right, that the scriptures that we have, that we have today, Jesus said yes. Like, those are the scriptures. And so when it comes to the New Testament, which were written after Jesus lived, then there was another process that happened here. So they looked at, was this a conformity to the rule of faith, which... This is just church history looking at, is this consistent with the teachings that were passed on from Jesus to the disciples, the apostles? Was it consistent? Number two, was there apostolicity and those who were in the immediate contact with the apostles, the apostles and like Matthew. And then there was those who were in the immediate contact with the apostles like Mark and Peter. Then you have the documents widespread a continuous acceptance and usage by the churches everywhere. These were the three things that they kind of went through. And so, again, they had the Old Testament scriptures, and the Old Testament pointed to this prophet that was going to be greater than Moses. And everyone looked at Jesus and said, oh, of course, Jesus is this prophet that the Old Testament wrote about. And so Jesus proved that with his miracles and ultimately with his resurrection. And then Jesus gave this authority to his apostles and the New Testament prophets. And one of the just really unique things in the scriptures, and you'll see this in a second of how this relates, is the authority or the a way that Jesus was preparing his followers, his disciples, to write scripture. Imagine you're a follower of Jesus, and you have the Bible, right? You have it. And Jesus, you're walking with Jesus, and Jesus tells you, like, so you're going to write a new book to the Bible. You're probably like, what? Me? Are you serious? I'm going to? No. Like, can you imagine? These were, like, Matthew. He was a tax collector. And Jesus says, you're Matthew. You're going to write a whole gospel account, and every word of it is going to be true. Matthew's like, what? How is this possible? And so... Jesus prepares them for this in John chapter 16, starting in verse 13. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will, tell me, he will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. 
And all that belongs to the Father is mine. And that is why I said, the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. And of course, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And we have the Holy Spirit in us today that is leading us and teaching us and guiding us. But yeah, that's something to get excited about. But in this specific moment, Jesus is preparing these people that have never experienced the Holy Spirit dwelling in them before, not only to dwell in them and fill them, but to literally inspire scripture through them. He's like, your words that you pen and write are going to be the Spirit of God leading you to write down truth. Incredible, incredible stuff. And so, they did this, right? The, the, the apostles, the, the, the first people that were around the apostles, they did this. And over the course of 300 years, this process of canonicity or canonization happened, all after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so, as you can imagine, 300 years of early church history, there's a lot of stuff that happened. A lot of stuff. And you can learn a lot about that stuff. But the very first version of the Bible, like we know it today with like almost the 66 books in it, that happened for the very first time in about 300 AD. Okay, that's like 300 years after Jesus resurrected and ascended into heaven. So that's a lot of information, right? A lot of information, a lot of notes. You could take some pictures, you could go online, screenshot it later, that type of thing. But I want you to feel something today, okay? I want you to, like, get this today. Did the people who lived after the resurrection of Jesus until we got the Bible in, like, 300 AD, did they become Christians? The answer is yes, of course. Were they saved, forgiven? Were they right with God forever? The answer is Yes. In fact, Christianity started with zero followers, and it shortly grew to a few after Jesus' resurrection. And in that process of 300 years, Christianity would spread and grow so much to basically take over the entire Roman Empire of the day, the biggest empire that was on the face of the planet. That's how impactful the Christian faith was. And guess what? There was no Bible as we know it today. There was no the Bible. So how did that happen? (laughs) How did it happen with no this? And the answer is because they had the writings of Paul. That's why. They had the writings of Matthew and Mark and Luke They had people who were literally there, who saw it with their own eyes and experienced it and wrote it down with their own hands. And those records of those writings have been passed on to the next generation. They had the writings of James and the writings of John. And all of these writings pointed to one person, this, the Savior, Jesus, that Jesus died for them, that he rose again to give them new life. And you know, many, pretty much all modern biblical scholars will try to question almost every little part of the Bible. 
They will pick it apart to death. They will pick apart the process of how the Bible came to be, what I just described to you. They'll pick apart all those other works that the Bible said that were on the screen, right? They'll say, well, what about those? And, and just like those are irrelevant, then the ones that we read today are also kind of made up by other people that were written much later in history. Like these weren't eyewitnesses. This was somebody else much later that was writing these things. But while that's true, there's no like reputable, real, modern, biblical scholar that questions one particular thing, that is that the Apostle Paul, there was a guy named Apostle Paul who lived about 2,000 years ago, and he wrote a, a book, a letter, that we call 1 Corinthians today. O almost no even you know, non-Christian Bible scholar questions that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And so in this book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is what Paul writes. He says, let me tell you this. <clears throat> Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there was no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. So this series is called My Life is Built on the Bible, right? And, and it is because these words are true. They are the word of God. We learn about Jesus from them and what he did for us. They reveal God in a personal way. And his words are living and active in our life. And they're powerful to transform our lives. But I am not saved because of the Bible, like the 66 books that were bound together as we see it today, right? I'm not a Christian because I've read this, or I'm holding this, or I'm studying it, or I'm even preaching it. I'm a Christian because I believe in Jesus, and I have a strong faith <clears throat> that this, what I believe about Jesus, is true, not because the Bible, as we see this, says so, but because Matthew, who was with Jesus, saw Jesus, wrote down what he experienced and was taught by Jesus, and Matthew's words were then copied, and I'm reading them 2,000 years later. That's why my faith is strong. And not just Matthew, but John and Mark, and Luke, and Paul. These were real people who lived in real places, who recorded real words that survived 2,000 years of history, that they point to a God-man who came to save the world, who came to save me, to save me from my sin. And my friends, that person's name is Jesus. Amen. So now, let's talk about language. Language. So we got the books, right? You, you followed that process. We got the books. We got, we got the books, the 66 books. They were collected. We're in about the year 300 AD, all right? So what language were those books written in? All right, yes. Many of the first copies of all of them were written in Greek. And this is actually a picture from a manuscript that was collected together where all the books of the Bible are found in 400 AD. 
So we got to fast forward another 100 years. And this is written in what's called Unical Script. So it's like literally all capital letters all running together. And this is one of the first versions of the Bible as we know it today. Does anyone want to read that and study that to get God's word in their life? Nobody signed up. Yeah, it's cool. I took Greek for three years in seminary, and I don't know what that says. So you have to translate it, right? You have to translate it. And let me tell you, and you know this, translation is hard in general. So when I was in high school, I took Spanish for three years. And I learned a lot of Spanish. And in fact, on people's birthdays, we would sing happy birthday to the classmate in Spanish. And so we'd sing, Feliz cumpleaños a ti, Feliz cumpleaños a ti, Feliz cumpleaños a Kevin, Feliz cumpleaños a ti. <clears throat> anyway, so... <clears throat> So, Feliz literally means happy, cumpleaños means birthday, and then sa to you t. Feliz cumpleaños sa ti. Like literal word for word translation of the song Happy Birthday. But if you talk to any Spanish speaking family in the world, most likely, and you ask them, Could you sing the song that you sing for happy birthday to your family? I guarantee you, they ain't singing that song. (laughs) It's the literal translation of those words, but they ain't singing that song. They got their own song that they sing on people's birthday. And uh, if you're Spanish speaking, I think you know what I'm talking about. Or if you don't, you got to inform me. <laughs> but uh, I'm so glad that you're here. But like, you got, like, there's this own thing that you, there's different words. And if you translate the Spanish words into English, you're like, why are you singing that on someone's birthday? Right? It, like the translation is hard is in general. So now you got to translate that <laughs> into a modern language. This language isn't spoken on our planet today. We're talking English, modern English to modern Spanish being hard. This is ancient Greek to modern English, even more difficult. And in order to translate a text, you have to have a text. So remember, these texts were handwritten. They were literally written with a pen on parchment. On, and then they were copied so you know, we don't have the original manuscripts today. They were copied because guess what? They didn't have a computer where you could click copy and paste. They didn't have that. They literally hand copied these things. You know what the cool thing is on your phone these days? Is you can like hover it, the camera over a piece of paper and like click it and the text like jumps off the page and you can copy and paste it. That's amazing. They didn't have that <laughs> 2,000 years ago. And so what they did have were they had trained scribes that this was their life, this was their job, where they sat in a room and they wrote with their hand a copy of the text. So can you imagine doing that? And there are hilarious stories of people 
telling about their uh, experience doing this. Like, for example, anyone try to write anything when it's freezing cold outside? Like your hand is like stuck and it's shaking. Well, it's not like they had like heaters like they do today, right? So like there's a story of a scribe sitting in a room by himself and he's so cold, like he can't even breathe and his hand is shaking and he's copying the scriptures because that was his job to do. And so when people are doing that and people are involved in the process, there has to be little errors or I'll skip a word or I'll skip a letter or I'll write something a little off and so the next person that copies it doesn't copy it exactly right. And that happened and we call those in Christianity, in New Testament critical study, we call those variations. And so there are variations to the manuscripts or the copies of the manuscripts that exist. And so it's not like everyone's pointing back to one particular thing, right? There's all these copies and all of them are slightly different. Now, some people look at that and say, well, how do you know it's the right one? Like, doesn't that really undermine the credibility of Scripture if there's all these different variations? It's a good point, but they just don't know. Like, if you look in your Bible, there's a good chance that you have these little footnotes, and on the bottom, it tells you the variations. Like, it's not a secret, like, there's variations. Like, you can look and say, oh, yeah, okay, some manuscript said this. Okay, so it's not a secret. And also... There are no major doctrinal points that are covered in these variations. It's not like, you know, the guy's name was Jesus or it was, you know, somebody else, right? Like everything is really clear and it's really, um, it's all there, but the variations do exist. You just have to look at the footnotes to see them. And so you had to go from these manuscripts and then they were copied into the copies and now you got copies of copies that eventually were translated from Greek into English. And the first English translation of your Bible, well, it was translated not from Greek, it was translated from Latin. So they went from Greek to Latin to English. And that Latin text was called the Vulgate. It's a pretty popular one um, back in church history. And so from this line of translation, we get the, new, or the King James Version or the Byzantine text, okay? So from the Vulgate, the Latin version, they translated it into English, and we got the King James version. But then somebody said, why are we translating a Latin version of the text into English when, we, when the originals were written in Greek and Hebrew, so why don't we translate directly from Greek and Hebrew into English? And so they started doing that, and that's where you get the NASB, the NIV, the ESV. These are called the, the, um, the Byzantine text. Is that right? Alexandrian text, I think. I think my note's wrong here. Anyway, one of those. Sorry about that. And then, uh, so you got two major points of translation, okay? You got like the King James Version coming from this line of the majority text, and then you got another line of text, the NASB, the NIV, the ESV, coming on this side of things. And so you might wonder, or you've asked this question before, like why are there so many versions of the Bible? Like why, why am I reading all these different kinds of things? Why, why does this happen? And, and the short answer is because, well, translation is hard. 
And you could translate in a word-for-word kind of literal way, which is called a form-based way. Or you could be more functional in your translation, which is a more meaning-based or thought-for-thought translation way. And so there's also like extremes of these on both sides that don't make it onto the list of translations. So you've got super extreme literal translations where they're looking literally at the Greek and, or in the Hebrew and they go right to English as like the best word they can find. But you can imagine that it's impossible to read that, especially if you do it in Hebrew because you're reading right to left. It's not even the same way as English and left to right. And so there's literal word-for-word translations, and you can find some of these on the internet. And then there's more meaning-based or like super meaning-based like paraphrases. So these are not translations. These are somebody sitting down with their Bible and saying, well, let me like rephrase it in a way that makes sense or tries to capture more of the essence of what's going on. And so that's why you have this large continuum of like literal word-for-word Feliz Cumpleaños Sati. And then you have at the over here, you have the Spanish version of happy birthday that doesn't even say happy birthday in it, right? So you have literal to, to formal. And so this is important. Which version or which translation of the Bible is the correct one? <laughs> right? That's the trick question, right? There's, there's all of them. There's, is there only one translation of the Bible? No. Is there only one translation that you should study if you really want to go deep in your Bible study? Should you study this particular translation? No. If you really want to be a deep Christian who's like super strong in their faith and like I just walk around and I'm a deep Christian and I study my Bible like nobody else, do you study a certain translation? No. In fact, in fact, the, the original King James Version of the Bible that was published in 1611, this is what the people who wrote that or translation published it said. So in the beginning, you know, you got some like preface pages, you know, it's telling you about the publishing and all that stuff. This is what they said. They says, we do not deny, nay, we affirm and avow that the very meanest, meaning worst, you have to translate 1600 English into modern English, you know. The very meanest translation of the Bible in English set forth by men of our profession containeth the word of God. Nay, is the word of God. As the king's speech, which he uttered in Parliament, being translated into French, Dutch, Italian, and Latin, is still the king's speech, though it be not interpreted by every translator with the like grace, nor preadventure so fitly for phrase, nor so expressly for sense everywhere. Right? This is incredible that the people who translated the original King James Version of the Bible are saying that even the worst translation of the Bible is still the Bible. And we can learn and glean all sorts of information from all translations. Because somebody captures it in a little bit different sense and somebody you know, reads this and it hits you a little differently and that's what translation is. Like that's, that's just what it is. And so around here at Connect Us Church, you'll hear me oftentimes use the New Living Translation of the Bible. 
Now, of course, we'll throw in other things because, well, it's good to learn and see how other people said it and those types of things. But we'll often use the New Living Translation of the Bible. And so I wanted to give you a two-minute brief history of where this particular translation came from. Because it started with the Living Bible, which was a personal paraphrase, not a translation of the Bible. And it was written by a guy named Kenneth Taylor, and it was published in 1971. Some of you might remember that. It was popular. Uh, He used the American Standard Version, which was written in 1901, as his base text for the paraphrase. And so if you get the picture, right, here's Kenneth Taylor. He's got his ASV version of the Bible out, and he's reading it, and he's literally writing his words that paraphrase what he's reading in his ASV version as a paraphrase. And that's what led to the Living Bible. And it became popular, and all these people were reading it. And so in the late 1980s, 90 Greek and Hebrew scholars got together to revise the Living Bible. They said, this is great, but we're, like, it has to be better. Like, it, has to be a, it has to be better than it currently is. And so these people got together, and after working all of these years, the result was not a paraphrase. They did an entirely new translation of the Bible. And so like, they put together this new thing, and it was published in 1996 as the Holy Bible New Living Translation. And so um, what's fascinating is Outreach Magazine did um, a study to see which Bibles are the most popular. Like, which one are you reading? And the most popular Bible that people read is the NIV, the New International Version. And number two on the list is the New Living Translation. Number three is the English Standard Version. And then number four is the King James Version. And so they're wondering, you know, is the New Living Translation, which is like one of the newest ones on that list, I think it is the newest one on that list, is it going to bump up into number one here pretty soon? Because they talk with pastors, more pastors are using it. And if more pastors are using it, maybe more Christians will be using it as well too. And so I like to use it specifically because I think it provides a solid modern translation that the majority of people today can understand a lot better than other translations. And so that's ultimately the goal, right? Is understanding Like, what good is reading words, even the Word of God, if you can't understand it? You might be able to appreciate the beauty of what's written or the the rhythm or something, but it's not the words themselves that save you, right? It's not the beauty of the words or the depth or the oldness of the words that save you. It's who the words point to that save you. And so, I want to close my message today with a video of 16 different people reading a different translation of John 3.16. Because it's in this verse that we learn about a God who loves you. And what he did specifically for you so that you could have eternal life. 